Broadcasting live from Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Women's Telehealth, whose mission is to bring scarce, high-risk maternal fetal medicine services to patients and referring obstetricians in their own community, urban or rural. Visit womenstelehealth.com for more information. Now, here are your hosts, Tanya Mack and C.W. Hall. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's our first time together in the new year, so I'm glad to see you and glad to be back. While Krista was doing the intro there, it just occurred to me, we've been getting together on the radio for almost three years now. A long, a very long time. That's hard to believe. I, it's I, hard to I'm, believe anything in media lasts that long in the Twitter <laughs> age, I think, personally. Since we've been doing the Top Docs radio show, I've had an opportunity to sit down with a number of the specialists from Emory. And today we get to chat with another one of their experts, helping them refine the cool ways they're delivering healthcare. We do. So let me kind of jump right in there. Today, our topic is teleneurology. And we have Dr. Greg Esper with us today. And let me tell you a little bit about him. He is the Associate Professor and Vice Chair for Clinical Services for Emory University Hospital. He's the Director of General Neurology and Neurologic Diseases. And we especially want to hear about the directorship of new care models. He got his MD at Vanderbilt University. He did his residency at Washington University in St. Louis and a neurology fellowship at Harvard's Beth Israel Hospital. And our topic today is a little different, CW. I know we've talked about telestroke, kind of based in the ER, yep. um, on one of our segments last year. But Emory's doing some really interesting new um, kind of neurology applications we're kind of going to get into. Here in Georgia, we have over 100 counties that have no neurology services. And telemedicine, as we've talked about before, is one way that uh, we have a tool to kind of get to the patients where the service is needed. We're going to be talking a little bit about the treatment of stroke, but also movement disorders such as multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's, epilepsy. And Emory's doing some really unique things in that they're using telemedicine tools to do outreach to patients for not just stroke. So welcome, Dr. Esper. Thank you for having me. We're thrilled that you're here today. So I'm really interested just right out of the get gate and hearing how you got to telemedicine and specifically hearing more about what does a director of new care models mean? Well, Emory has been uh, looking at how do we do higher quality patient care delivery at the most efficient uh, way for both the patients and the payers since really about 2011. In 2012, uh, I was asked to direct the Office of New Care Models, which was really an office of one, which was me. Start somewhere. Uh, within the Office of Quality and Risk uh, under Dr. Uh, William Bornstein, who's our chief medical chief quality officer. And at that time, my job was to find ways to uh, create value for patients, um, whether it was in doing the first pilot in uh, RN care coordination for the highest risk patients, trying and actually not doing very well on a remote patient monitoring pilot in mm -hmm. 2012 for transplant patients, but learning a lot from it and learn and understanding what the patient's role is, what the doctor's role is, et cetera. And then looking at how do you prevent readmissions? How do you streamline the care of patients? And over time, the role of director in new care models has come to, has come to, involve a number of different things. The first one is really about 
care design and care redesign for uh, various service lines within, within Emory Healthcare. And then what we'll talk about today, which is uh, telehealth or what we call virtual patient care. Mm-hmm. And the reason why we call it virtual patient care is because there are so many different ways that you can do it instead of just doing a video mm-hmm. or a video link mm-hmm. where you're looking at a patient. Uh, and also we do uh, various other types of projects to look and see how to motivate patients to uh, take care of their own health or become more involved in their own health uh, and uh, other things like that. Sounds great. Well, let's kind of get into your um, neurology program. So I know you, you're you actually setting up in the last year, I believe, you have to correct me on the timeline, kind of a virtual neurological care setting. Exactly. So, you know, telehealth at Emory has been around really since 2010 when Tim Buckman launched his EICU program. Mm-hmm. But we haven't gone in really into the outpatient space uh, very much. Uh, a couple of uh, programs here and there until we um, decided that we were going to really have a focus on the outpatient telehealth or virtual patient care models circa 2015. Uh, and we developed certain pilots, one of which was uh, teleneurology for Parkinson's disease patients um, and understanding how we could deploy care to those patients and help them minimize the distance and the travel that they needed to undergo to actually get the care that they need. So our champion for that is Dr. Jamie Hatcher-Martin. Dr. Martin uh, is a movement disorders trained neurologist and is also very interested in telehealth. Uh, And she felt like she could actually deliver care to patients that suffer from Parkinson's disease while watching them on video. Now, the question becomes, you know, how do you actually deliver care to those patients? Do you do it in their home? Do you do it in a clinic where there is a nurse? Do you, because you need vital signs and you need other types of things when you're caring for a Parkinson's patient. You need to know exactly what their meds are. And typically you need to perform different functions in the visit that show that you are delivering quality of care. One of those functions, for instance, is medication reconciliation. Mm-hmm. So for instance, a nurse would have to perform a medication history and do the vital signs and make sure the pharmacy is correct and so forth. And then you do the visit and then you reconcile the medications Mm -hmm. afterwards and do what needs to be done. So we felt like the visits had to be in a clinic setting Mm -hmm. as opposed to just delivering the care at home. So what we did was we looked at our Clark Holder Clinic in LaGrange. We looked at the number of patients that we had within a 25 to 30 mile radius of the Clark Holder Clinic. And we sent a letter to those patients and said, we're interested in trying out this model. You come to the Clark Holder Clinic for a visit where you will see the doctor on the computer on video. They will do a video visit. You'll have a nurse there. And we will advise you what we think are ne- is necessary. We'll increase your Cinemet, we'll decrease your Cinemet. We'll increase your Mirapex, we'll decrease your Mirapex, et cetera. And so we found a number of patients. We confirmed that they were interested. Then we had to set up the operation. So we had to go down to the Clark Holder Clinic. Jamie and Megan Moyer, our project manager for telehealth, went down and 
looked at the setup, made sure that um, they could actually see the patient in the visit. And they actually conducted a visit, a telehealth visit at Clark Holder. They were in a separate room with a video and the other, and the patient was in another room. Mm -hmm. Just kind of test? Just to test and Mm -hmm. make sure that the visit would go okay and that the technology was working, et cetera, and that all the, everything could be collect, all the data could be collected and that the notes could be signed, et cetera. It was successful. And since that time, Jamie has now done eight visits. Again, it's a pilot. Mm -hmm. And we are looking to expand not only in the Clark Holder area, but also in other areas. Mm -hmm. We've done satisfaction surveys from those patients. They're they're very satisfied with them. One patient thought, you know, boy, what I I would still like to see the doctor um, in, you know, in person. Um, but the telehealth itself was went off, I think, without a hitch. Mm-hmm. So I have several questions about that. First off, let's talk a little bit about, um, is Dr. Hatcher Martin based, she's based up at the main campus at yes. Emory. So she is the movement specialist that is connecting with the patients down in the LaGrange Clinic. Yes, that's correct. Okay. And then another question I had is, uh, you talked a little bit about you're using video because she's dealing more with movement of patients and Mm -hmm. how they move. Mm -hmm. Is there any kind of testing equipment or does the the telehealth presenter with the patient uh, do hands-on anything to get the patient to go through tests or how does that work? Well, um, in this instance, it's actually not necessary because... what Dr. Martin does is uh, she goes through the 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 UPDRS, the mm-hmm. Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale, okay, which only requires the patients to do certain movements that she can have them do. Okay. It's not like telestroke in the ER where you need a nurse to potentially facilitate the movement. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really, hey, can you tap your fingers? Hey, can you move your hands in this way? Can you tap your feet? And then she does an assessment on how the patient is moving. And she'll look at the various aspects of that assessment and then make decisions about the medications based on the symptoms obtained from the history and the exam that she sees in front of her on the video. And the nurse does not need necessarily to facilitate. Mm -hmm. This is another question I have because I would imagine with a condition such as Parkinson's, you're going to be seeing patients over time because now they're in the system and Mm -hmm. the whole idea is to avoid that travel back and forth to the main campus of Emory. Do you actually record the the session, a movement especially? So like if the patient came back six months from now, she can see gait changes or something like that in your technology? Do you record the session? Video, we do not record the telehealth session. Okay. If we wanted to do a video assessment, mm-hmm. uh, we would record the patient at main campus at the Brain Health Center. Okay. Typically what happens is there is not only in the UPDRS, there's a number of different scores that you, for each individual movement, and then you add the score up for a total score. Mm-hmm. Um, you typically use the individual movements and the total score to make decisions about what to do with medicines. Actually, at the Brain Health Center, we are developing a new tool called motion analysis, uh, which is really going to help us with not only the Parkinson's patients, but with the other movement disorder patients, multiple sclerosis patients, stroke patients, et cetera, to figure out are our interventions really working? And do we? And how can we study that? And how can we use motion analysis and even gait analysis to actually um, 
make sure we're heading in the right direction with patient interventions. Very good. So let's kind of go back then to the connectivity piece or the technology piece. I know I'm in telehealth, and when I set up a new location, I just hope when I connect the dots, everything works. Right. (laughs) It sounds so sophisticated, but at some point you got to flip the switch and go, okay, can we see each other? That's the hope. That's the hope. So I know on my side um, of telemedicine or how we deliver telemedicine, we have a pipeline Right. So does Emory provide the network? Are you working through like an Emory network or right. so how do you move? You know, how do you? What, that's what is a really, really good question. Actually, that question has sparked, uh, you know, important, important considerations about risk, too. So yeah. at Emory. So first of all, first of all, our tool that we use is not Skype. Mm-hmm. It's not <laughs> Yeah, a lot FaceTime. of patients think that. You That's know. their orientation. It's like HIPAA compliant Skyping. Well, and the reason why is because the reason why we don't use uh, Skype is because it's not HIPAA compliant. Mm-hmm. And um, at least some of the versions that most people have. Mm-hmm. Uh, we use our service, our enterprise provider for the video tele for the video AV telehealth. Mm-hmm. The AV part is uh, video. Okay. V i d y o. They're certainly an industry leader. Exactly. Yeah. And they're in multiple different types of platforms. Mm-hmm. So we use that. So we use video as uh, as our instance to provide the telehealth or the virtual patient care. Mm-hmm. So the question becomes, you know, what network are you on? Mm-hmm. So when we provide that service, we are on the Emory network. Mm-hmm. And the Emory network is as secure as it can possibly be. Mm-hmm. And when the patient is at LaGrange, at mm-hmm. the Clark Holder Clinic, they're on the Emory network mm-hmm. because it's one of our clinics. Mm-hmm. If we are going to deploy care at the Hiawassee Emory Clinic, at the Heart and Vascular Center at Hiawassee, they will be on our Emory infrastructure, our Emory net, et cetera. The question actually becomes, when you go into different models of care, which might be, how are we providing a telehealth service to you at your home? We are on our network, which is secure. How secure is the network at home? Mm-hmm. which is a really important question for, yeah, can too. somebody mm-hmm. tap into that? And can somebody get into the mm-hmm. video room, et cetera? So we are actually looking at all of those features as we deploy our other pli- pilots, which are post-operative surgery visits, dermatology follow-up visits, speech therapy visits. I mean, you don't want, so, you can do speech therapy over video. video. Mm-hmm. You don't need someone to come a hundred miles to do speech therapy mm-hmm. when they can just stay in their home and do it. But the and the question is, can they stay in their home and do it? Do they have to go to a clinic and do it? And there are a lot of other factors that come in. I know what you mean. We had a, a patient last year, our first one that we took care of that was pregnant, homebound. Mm-hmm. And we did 100% of her care prior to delivery at home. But we used Bluetooth technology. We used a telehealth platform that was embedded into the right. EMR and recordable. And um, we did two home visits to teach the tools, that Bluetooth tools. Yes that we would use in the home. But I think people are used to two healthcare points being connected Mm -hmm. and being secure because we've had this environment of HIPAA. But when we go into someone's home where they have not had that requirement, and now their device that they're on is connected to who knows what. That is exactly what you're talking about. Um, Another question I had is, let's kind of go back to Bluetooth. Do you guys use 
like peripheral tools when you do your virtual exams, like a Bluetooth stethoscope or? So at this point, we have not deployed, uh, actually, correction, Um, Dr. Uh, Tata, who does telehealth visits for transplant patients in Tifton, Georgia, does use a stethoscope. I don't think it's a Bluetooth stethoscope. I think it's a USB-connected stethoscope. Mm -hmm. Um, But for our current outpatient uh, pilots, we are not using uh, Bluetooth equipment. We did try the use of Bluetooth equipment for our remote patient monitoring uh, pilot and transplant, and there were a lot of difficulties with patient setup. Mm-hmm. So you allude to the fact that you sent someone into the, into the home twice to make sure that everything was set up mm-hmm. correctly. Uh, I think that that is very important to, because we tend to minimize, and this is where we tend to minimize the impact on the patient from not only a setup perspective, but an operational perspective, how it makes them feel perspective. It's actually a little bit frightening at first, you know, to be able to say, well, I'm removed from my doctor. They're going to be monitoring. I'm not used to this. Mm-hmm. And so we have to be observant to the patient's feelings about that. Um, and we have to be able to support them through that transition, which is something that we are looking at. Yeah, we'll come back to patient satisfaction in a little bit. So we've talked a little bit about the technology piece and how we connect one into the other. I'm kind of curious too about, you had your physician, Dr. Hatcher Martin, that had you guys had this idea, but then what, what do you have to do, especially in new care models, because we're not just talking about neurology. Mm-hmm. Hopefully Emory's looking at lots of other specialties where you could deliver care this way. How do you go about kind of training the physician or the care provider to get used to the tools? Well, I think it depends on what instance of telehealth you want to use. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about telehealth or virtual patient care, probably the more accurate term, we think of virtual patient care in seven buckets. There's the patient-facing bucket, which is the doctor seeing the patient either on an inpatient basis or an outpatient basis and making a decision. Telestroke, classic example Mm -hmm. of inpatient Mm -hmm. ER, uh, outpatient Parkinson's disease, just like we talked Mm -hmm. about. Then there is a, a bucket where you're looking at the patient, not even on video. It's what we call an E visit, where the patient is telling you over a form that they're submitting to you electronically what their symptoms are. And you are then returning to them, this is the answer, this is what I think it is, and this is how we're going to change your care. That's an Mm e-visit. So there are different, the the model for that is uh, typically low acuity outpatient. ear infection or three days or whatever. So basically somebody would be submitting, say, I have this in my, I I think I have a urinary tract infection. They go through a stage protocol and they say, oh, yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, you need to see a provider. No, you don't. This Mm -hmm. is the antibiotic we're going to use, et cetera. It's algorithm. A, exactly. Yeah. And, and basically it's protocoled. Mm-hmm. So that's the second instance. The third instance is actually a service instance where you might be um, providing a service such as a read of imaging, mm-hmm. a read of an echocardiogram, a read of some test that you are then providing back to the 
initiating sites mm-hmm. with an interpretation mm-hmm. and possibly advice on how to handle that. Mm-hmm. Uh, The fourth and fifth are remote patient monitoring and mobile health, which are not the same thing. The sixth is store and forward asynchronous telehealth, which is typically what's used in dermatology, ophthalmology for retina, Mm -hmm. and pathology. And then the seventh is data streaming. And we lump live. and mm-hmm. live data stream. Yeah, we do that. Yeah. Um, and for instance, fetal heart rate monitoring, mm-hmm. right? So, and data streaming is its own bucket. It's not, it, it can be linked up with the other ones. So the, so the real question becomes, how do you train providers on what instance? Mm-hmm. So the training would be different from e-visit it. as it would be for video. That's a good way to, that's be, a good framework. I like you know, that framework. So that's how we think at. about it. Okay. And would your, do they have mentors or, I mean, I'm especially interested because this is a tool we're using now, but really is getting integrated more and more and more in the future. You have the largest probably residency program in the state of Georgia. Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of curious, and maybe you don't know, but are you integrating any of your new care models into Emory's physician training, nurse practitioner training programs? Because we are responsible for the tripartite mission of any academic university, mm-hmm. which is we are going to provide the, Teachers, yeah. the best quality clinical care and we're going to train the next generation and we're going to lead the development of medicine from a research perspective. We have to think about all of these aspects when we look at our virtual patient care program. Mm-hmm. So we do intend to involve residents, fellows, and other trainees, nurses, Mm -hmm. nurse practitioners who are going to be the workforce of the future Mm -hmm. in the use of the various buckets of telehealth. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure that we we have the infrastructure in place before we do that and that we can involve the School of Medicine and the School of Nursing and others to actually deploy the education appropriately. So one aspect that's really important, and you know, when we thought about Teleneurology for just one of our hospitals. You know, one of the questions was, you know, do we do we deliver that care with the residents? And we came to the answer that we will set up the program, make sure it is running flawlessly, or with as few flaws as possible, mm-hmm. right? And once it's up and running, and once we are delivering the care, we will then add the rotation to the residents as a teaching rotation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, th- and that's I think really important. Mm-hmm. You you don't want to learn, you don't want to necessarily learn how to deploy something while you're using a trainee per mm-hmm. se. Mm-hmm. So, w- what we're going to try and do is make sure that we can deploy deploy the services appropriately and then train appropriately. You know, what's really interesting in our experience, we were talking off air about we, in my company, have completed almost 20,000 high-risk MFM encounters. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking as you're talking about training, just the evolution of we think we have it set up and in six months we use totally different technology and we have totally different tools and we have totally different. So it's like any part in medicine, right? You just have to keep up. It changes so rapidly. Absolutely. And so what's key are the fundamentals, the protocols and the principles. And at Emory, we, we are guided by three principles. Our CEO, John Lewin, has three principles by which we operate. Number one, is it right for the patient? Mm -hmm. Number two, is it right for the provider? And then number three, does it make financial sense to actually Mm -hmm. deliver that service, Mm -hmm. right? 
is it right for the patient? It may not be right for the Parkinson's patient that's having low blood pressure, that's right. fainting. Well, telemedicine isn't these, for every patient. It's not for every it's patient. Every it patient. has to be right in that circumstance. Correct. And the providers need to know on the protocol, when do you say telehealth virtual visit is over, you're coming into the office, <laughs> right? That's one of the keys. Regardless of how the technology changes, regardless of how the video changes, that is a major key. That is a major principle. When can you deliver care via video? When do you need to see the patient live? Yeah, I think this is one of the most controversial aspects of telehealth. Mm-hmm. Um, I know at the last uh, ATA American Telemedicine Association meeting, I met a guy from South Africa, and we were talking about ultrasound protocols for high-risk OB mm-hmm. and you know, how we deploy and how we start up a program, they really didn't have anything. And he says, well, where do I start? And I said, you have to start with realizing what the line in the sand is before anything is developed. And so protocol development by specialty. And as we learn what works and what doesn't work and what those protocols and how they're refined, I think that's one of the key things for all of us. Um, in telemedicine to keep learning and publishing and talking Agree. about. Agree. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about um, kind of springboarding on that. There are limitations. We've been talking about that line in the sand. For your particular program, what are kind of ideal patients that you found and what are ones that you know that you have a limitation and they will have to come in? The first one is patient comfort. So I mentioned, you know, there was one patient that said, you know what, I'm, I'm probably more comfortable seeing the doctor in person. So mm-hmm. like, that's one of the first things. If the patient is not comfortable doing this, mm-hmm. then, then it's not right for that patient and we shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. As you're evaluating a patient, we haven't had this issue, but for instance, in Parkinson's disease, a lot of patients will uh, develop um, fluctuations in their disease. They'll develop some blood pressure problems where their blood pressure can drop when they stand up. It's called orthostatic hypotension. Mm-hmm. If you can't adequately get that information and the patient is complaining about it, then they probably need to be seen. Um, if there are fine movements that you need to see, for instance, if you were, you, we, I have not heard of or seen in the literature, and I could be wrong because I, um, just because I haven't seen it doesn't mean it's not out there. Uh, I don't believe you can do DBS programming, deep brain stimulation programming for a Parkinson's patient over telehealth, over virtual patient mm-hmm. care, although that's probably going to change in the near future. Mm-hmm. Deep brain stimulation, of course, when Parkinson's disease gets so bad, there is a surgical procedure by right. which we can insert stimulators into various parts of the brain that will Control allow the them movements. to get better. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a leading program at Emory for that you can't program those patients over virtual patient care, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, services. So again, depending on what you're dealing with, um, that's when you have to figure out line in the sand. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. I'd like to kind of return to your actual experience with the pilot program. We talked a little bit about um, patient satisfaction, and I kind of want to go by, you talked about the person that was well, just if I had a relationship with a doctor once and then I'd feel a little bit better, I want to come in, you know, for at least some established uh, relationship. And these are follow-up visits. We have not done new patient visits. Interesting. We have not done, these are patients, these are established patients. Okay. Um, We haven't done the new patient visits yet. Um, Georgia's actually recently changed, the Medical Board of Georgia has recently amended the law, amended the statute a bit. 
but it, that patient was a was a follow up patient. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think she was just. I think the patient was just uncomfortable with the telehealth procedure. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about the results sure. of your program. Have been excellent. So what are some things that you're hearing from the patients when you do the satisfaction surveys about their experience? Well, I think we've saved over a thousand miles of travel. I'm looking at that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 1,132 driving miles. Yeah. 1,100. So think about, don't think, just think about the patient. Think about the patient and the family, the patient and the caregiver. Because oftentimes it might take a significant amount of effort to get that person in the car, Mm -hmm. uh, especially when they have a movement disorder. Mm Mm-hmm. And people taking time off work. People taking time off mm-hmm. work. So the journey from the Clark Holder area is roughly about two hours. Mm-hmm. You know, just the journey itself, I think, you know, you're saving about four hours on average mm-hmm. for that for that uh, family member and the patient per day. Mm-hmm. Um, the satisfaction has been overwhelmingly positive for both the patient and the caregivers. Those are the things that we tend to look at when we look at those types of, uh, of any program. Um, But it's not just about miles saved and it's not just about satisfaction. It's whether you can actually deploy the care correctly. Mm -hmm. We have, and we have had good outcomes from actually deploying the care to that, to that number of patients. Mm -hmm. So where we've been able to adjust the medications appropriately and haven't had any untoward outcomes. Mm -hmm. Your office was kind enough to kind of share some of your results with me. And one thing that really struck me is there's a comment in here that says, none of the patients surveyed were concerned about security. Yes. And so people, you tend to think, and I would guess that your patients aren't the mostly younger, used to technology patients. They're not, the patients that were not weaned on technology. Right. Not not those patients. Yeah. Not, not those patients. But w- we want them to trust the fact that if yeah. we're deploying the care at Emory, that they don't need to worry about security. Yeah. And if they do need to worry about security, like they're getting the care in their home, we need to make them aware of the risks Mm -hmm. and they need to make the decision of whether they want the virtual care or not from their home because their network may not necessarily be secure. Mm -hmm. Okay, very good. So all good feedback early out of the gate. That's great information. I want to talk a little bit. We talked a little about um, softer savings, such as miles driven and time off work and productivity and things like that. But let's kind of get into reimbursement. We were talking before we went on air a little bit right. about um, in telemedicine in general, state by state, there is disparity and also commercial to government, there is disparity. What's kind of been your reimbursement experience with your early pilot information? Well, we've actually, when it's clinic to clinic, mm-hmm. we've actually uh, had a favorable um, okay. outcome from a reimbursement perspective. I think where we get into difficulty is when it is um, not the preferred site delivery mm-hmm. that the payer wants. So the payer will want it to be done in a clinic. They will not necessarily pay when the service is done when the patient is at home. Home or, monitoring, yeah, lagging in reimbursement. Right. Or even, for instance, let's say there, there are models out there for low acuity care. Mm-hmm. So I have a sore throat. I want a doctor now. There are various platforms mm-hmm. that you can log on to and We're do it. We're all on our plans now. Instead of going to urgent care, just yeah, Aetna covers for teledoc. So they yeah, do right? now. Well, mm-hmm. that's a new that's new, right? Mm-hmm. So they might cover for one of those, or it might come out of the patient's pocket. Mm-hmm. And so the patient actually has to know: um, Are they on a high deductible plan? Mm-hmm. Are they not on a high exactly. deductible plan? Mm-hmm. What's the copay if they're not on a high deductible, et cetera? 
Um, so what we've tend we've what we've tended to do as we bring up our infrastructure for figuring out how we're going to collect for visits that are not reimbursed by insurance mm-hmm. or the copay mm-hmm. on visits that would be reimbursed by insurance. Um, what we've tried to do is we've tried to look at things that are part of the service already provided. So one of the big things is post-operative care mm-hmm. because from the day of the surgery until 90 days mm-hmm. post-operatively, still period. part of the global. There's it's part of the global mm-hmm. period. So you can have 20 telehealth visits mm-hmm. or you can have one telehealth visit mm-hmm. and it's just part of the patient's care. So that is a cornerstone of our program. Various payers may or may not pay for things like different therapies. Mm-hmm. So we have to look at each payer for that. Mm-hmm. There are employer-based models, for instance, we are starting uh, to roll out our travel program, our pre-travel program, where we uh, where we can um, have patients uh, get their pre-travel advice and their uh, various great antibiotics needed. But it, it's based is through an employer model, so right. the employer is uh, reimbursing as opposed to mm-hmm. uh, an insurance company. Or, mm-hmm. Exactly. So again. Each different stage, each different use case requires an in-depth analysis of how it will be paid, what is the responsibility of the patient, what's the responsibility of the payer, and how do we need to set up our infrastructure to make sure that we are receiving that? Because if we don't have margin on it, we can't deliver the mission. Mm -hmm. It's not sustainable. It's not sustainable, Mm -hmm. in other words. So we have to make sure that it's sustainable uh, and that it's fair for all the parties that are involved. Mm-hmm. I know in the early going of telemedicine, there was some pushback from the payers around reimbursing the same level for delivery of care through this sort of platform versus sitting face-to-face. Yes. Even though in the end, the acuity law. of it mm-hmm. and the time involved in conducting the same sort of care, just I'm virtually here instead of in front of you. Right. Is that changing now? Well, um, the, the pair, as you actually, you probably know, Tanya, the, the, better than I actually, because you've dealt with it for so long, the parity laws, mm-hmm. but, um, but it, it has changed to some degree. What I would say is just to the level of acuity of the visit. So I have delivered care on video that is actually more intense than the care that I would have delivered in person. And the reason why is because video is an easier way to get to me. And so I will offer the patient, if they are doing worse, more visits because I can than than if they had to come into a fairly restricted schedule. Mm -hmm. But that is actually, so what I've, in in that sense, I have basically done what is quote unquote unreimbursed care. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it was very, it is very important for that patient. So I needed to do that in that circumstance. That's not, again, a sustainable model, but you have to Mm -hmm. do what's best for the patient. Mm -hmm. I know an answer to your question for us in parity law, uh, in Georgia, we have parity law, which basically says that the, the, the law mandates that all carriers cover and pay for as if you're there in person. Like for my business, if I'm remotely advising and looking at images from a fetus and I'm going to be liable for mm-hmm. what I tell and the That's care right. I provide and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, and whether I'm telling her in person or whether I tell her and I'm looking at the image via uh, AV connection, um, I have the same liability. 
And so in the state of Georgia, we have parity law. So all carriers have to pay as if we're there. Same rules oh, as if we're there. Mm-hmm. Uh, our neighbors are not the same. A good example is Alabama. So Alabama does not have parity law. They cover through the payers. Blue Cross Blue Shield is the market leader over there. They cover about four specialties. Neurology is one that they pay for, but in certain circumstances. But women's health is not. Um, it doesn't mean they can't do telemedicine, and it doesn't mean that the carriers right. will never pay it. It just means that the government is not going to be telling them in that state that they must. Right. So it is kind of a barrier right now in one sense state to state parity laws vary right and the only yeah. way that the payer when they look at their claims actually know that a telehealth visit has occurred is because a little modifier goes <laughs> the on GT the end modifier. of the claim the yeah. gt modifier yeah. so but again this is an interesting thing because it is state versus federal mm-hmm. um and so this is the question of advocacy. Mm-hmm. So when you're advocating and you advocate at a federal level, which is a Medicare advocacy versus Medicaid, which is a state advocacy, um, it's it, because advocacy is such a huge part of telehealth, as we know from Elizabeth Krupinski, who is our major telehealth expert at, at Emory. She started the program in Arizona statewide, basically created a statewide. Absolutely. Big telehealth out there. Big telehealth out there. Uh Exactly. And and Elizabeth is now advising us at Emory on our on our virtual patient care rollout. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, um, we've talked a little bit. Any other comments that you have? We've talked a little bit about movement disorders such as Parkinson's disease and a little bit about telestroke, but I'm guessing that you also have some other diagnostic categories that you Well, if you think about multiple sclerosis, we have a multiple sclerosis program at Emory. Um, When you start a patient on a therapy, you want to make sure that they're tolerating the therapy. They don't necessarily need to come in for that. Mm -hmm. That could be an Mm e-visit. It could be a video visit. Uh, You can look to see uh, if they have a rash or they've developed Mm -hmm. a rash because of something, uh, because of a, uh, a new medicine that you've started. So that's an application. I myself actually deliver a lot of headache care. Generally speaking, once you've done an exam once on a headache patient, you've determined that they've had migraines, common classical migraines, other types of headaches, you can deliver care virtually. Mm -hmm. Uh, Only when they have an exam change finding that that either the patient feels that they need to come in or you see something that they need to come in, they can be there. But you very well could deliver a lot of headache care. Mm -hmm. Uh, on virtually. Um, and there are, I think, tons of examples. Mm-hmm. Epilepsy care, drug, uh, you know, drug uh, toxicities. Uh, you may need them to get the lab, a lab test. Mm-hmm. You might be able to deploy home health um, and then look at them uh, and look for various findings on video. For instance, sometimes when epilepsy drug levels are high, the eyes can shake, but you can see that on video. Mm-hmm. Now, at the LaGrange Clinic, are you seeing a, a range or are you just we're, kind we're of specializing very focused, right now? Okay. Very focused right now. Um, what Dr. Martin's going to do is she's going to actually branch out to other movement disorders. So okay. to see essential tremor, to see other um, diagnoses, mm-hmm. diagnoses within the movement disorder category. Um, and that, I think, is a preference that she has. She's a movement disorders expert, mm-hmm. et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think as we refine that, uh, we can uh, we can have our other specialists mm-hmm. deliver their subspecialty care mm-hmm. um, at the in the same way. Okay, very good. Well, we're almost out of time, but one thing I do want to wrap up with, and I'm very interested in hearing, is kind of what are your priorities 
in new care models, kind of where are you going? So what do you kind of see on your immediate horizon and maybe a little bit on your long-term horizon? I'm over at Emory. Well, on the immediate horizon, I think we're going to be expanding um, our, our telehealth. We call them pilots because they're, we, we're refining um, the methodologies. We're looking to see if we can um, have physician-to-physician conversations mm-hmm. um, from a cardiology and a surgery perspective. We are going to be bringing up the numbers in our existing pilots, and we're looking at different rehabilitation models, cognitive rehab, et cetera, that can be delivered. That's on the near horizon. But I got to tell you, we went and we visited Michael Adcock uh, at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. He was just on our show last month. (laughs) And it's uh, amazing how many visits they do in their specialties over there. Well, I mean, when I think about when I think about the future of telehealth at Emory, you look to you look to the programs that are that the academic programs that are out there and are well developed. University of Mississippi Medical Center, University of Virginia with Karen Ruban, the program that uh, Elizabeth developed out in Arizona, uh, where the Thomas Jefferson Medical Center in Philadelphia is now becoming a major telehealth contributor. When we visited Michael and his crew at University of Mississippi, something really clicked for me there. And it was how the University of Mississippi is there for Mississippians Mm -hmm. and how the telehealth program is there to support the state and to support the welfare of the state. Because when the state's health is good, the economy is better, the people are happier, et cetera. So if we at Emory can help to lead, how do you leverage telehealth for the state of Georgia, especially with our affiliation with Stratus now? the Stratus Healthcare Network, we can help transform the state's health. And I think that's the long-term horizon. That's the future. And I'm going to be bold and say that's what Emory's, that's what Emory's desire is going to be as far as telehealth is concerned, and probably larger than that. I know our CEO is committed to that. And, um, and I think we're going to move in that direction. I know they have an impressive program, and I've been physically over there to meet with them myself. It, statewide, we're similar, and it's not just Mississippi. We're also talking to like UAB in Alabama. Mm-hmm. We have population where there's great resources in one or two places. Mississippi, it's really Jackson. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And then outside, there's really healthcare in Jackson, right. and then there's the rest of the state. And their diabetes program that they which had is what he was talking to us about. Yeah, basically saved Medicaid 189 mm-hmm. million dollars. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so you think about the the expansion of Medicaid. Mm-hmm. And you say, well, how can telehealth help the state expand Medicaid if that's what's necessary? And can we do it in a less expensive way, but by providing better care? I think that's a really important question and we need to answer it. Well, good to hear. Well, we're glad you're at Emory. We're glad you're um, helping us with the fight and getting the right tools and the right people and the right protocols out there. I'd like to just close from your pilot program. I know our listeners are really fascinated by the discussion and the statistics, but they also remember, they remember stories because it speaks to them personally and they may know someone. In your pilot, has there been like one great success story without patient names that you're excited about? Well, the, um, it's from the pilot itself, uh, we would have to ask Dr. Martin per se on that one. Mm-hmm. But from my perspective in the telehealth that I've been able to deliver, 
Um, I'll tell you this. Um, I did have a patient that was really suffering from actually a movement disorder called uh, cervical dystonia, which is where the where the neck uh, is tight and has difficulty moving, and it was really causing a lot of angst for um, for that patient. I was not able to see that patient rapidly in my clinic because I have such limited clinic time because of mm-hmm. all the administrative work I do. Mm-hmm. But I reached out to that person and I asked if they'd be willing to do a telehealth visit. Mm-hmm. And we were able to go through and conference in another provider at the same time mm-hmm. uh, to actually deliver the right care from two different specialty perspectives. Yeah, we do this with children's. Exactly. In pediatric cardiology. And we basically say, we, we delivered that care. There were actually two sessions, one that I did alone and one that I did with the other provider. And we delivered that care and we saved two ER visits. And the person is actually now doing quite well. That's excellent. What a great story. And congratulations on your post and your program and um, the beginning of hopefully what is a lot more good things to come. Thank you very much. It's been wonderful to be here with you. Good. We appreciate you coming today. And we just want to let the listeners know you can get more information at emoryhealthcare.org if you want to go on the website and take a look at what they're doing over there. So thank you for your visit. And we'll look forward to having you back with even more results. Thank you very much. Learn more about Women's Telehealth at womenstelehealth.com. And if you've not done so already on the Top Docs Radio Show page, on the upper left-hand corner, you'll see the Apple logo. That'll take you to the iTunes store where the podcast lives. You can subscribe to us. And that way, each week when the new episode comes out, it's downloaded to your device, ready for you to check out whenever it is available to you. And this is really important. All you folks listening and and, and folks here with us as guests, it, it, turn around and share the information that uh, when you listen to the podcast, click share, put it out on Facebook, put it out on LinkedIn. You may just be sharing some information that really makes a difference in the community of people that you care about. So I'll say thanks in advance to everybody who helps us get the word out about these cool innovations around the way healthcare is being delivered to the folks around our state. And it's really cool for me to be able to get to talk to folks like Dr. Esper here and, and some of his colleagues that I've had a chance to meet over time. It's been a really great treat for me to get to share this information and learn a lot myself about things that are happening now. So, Tanya, it's been a lot of fun. You always bring fantastic guests on the yeah, show. Yeah, we do. We have a good platform here, <laughs> good platform to get the word out. Well, I look forward to seeing you in two weeks. And everybody out there, make sure you check in with us next week. Noon, we've got the chairman of the Georgia House Health and Human Services Committee, Sharon Cooper, with us on the show. So still more great guests coming in. We'll see you all same time, same place. Have a good afternoon, everybody. Catch you then. 